Well, there's a lot of uh, new things in the church today. I wasn't here last Sunday, so I came in today. I thought, did I miss the calendar? There's an event after church. It, I don't know what that is. But the tables, new way of uh, kind of coming to church and just a way to set up for folks that can uh, take notes or, I don't know, text. I don't know, whatever happens during church. So, uh, uh, I was telling a few people, uh, I've, I was ac- actually in a church where they, they went a step further. They had couches. So I'm waiting for that. Let's see what we can do about that. So that'd be nice. So um, my name's Tom. I'm part of the leadership team here at Bridges. And I'm preaching today because our pastor, Cliff, is uh, across town. And he's at another church with his daughter. And they're uh, having a baby dedication for his grandson. And so he said he wanted to be there. I thought that we thought that was a good idea for him to be there and to be a whole family there with uh, the dedication of their grandson. So we're glad for that. So this morning, um, we're going to look at uh, uh, some text in the book of Acts. We're talking about renewing or seeking the Lord for um, a breakthrough in our lives. And I love the last song we sang, Jesus is my life. I think that's... Um, both an aspiration, a longing I have in my life. It feels elusive, mysterious sometimes. What does it mean for Jesus to be my life? And yet there's something that resonates in the core of my very being that says, yes, I've been created for this. I've been created for a relationship with the living God who's made himself known, who's broken through into our world across time and space and history in the person of Jesus Christ. And I've been created to know this God. Jesus is my life. And this morning we're going to look at Scripture and consider what does it mean for Jesus to continue that pathway into the deepest parts of our heart and our very being. That we could be men and women who live and say with confidence, Jesus is my life. I know this one. I know not just about Him, but I, I know him because he's broken through again and again and again into my heart and through all the barriers that I throw up that would keep him at arm's length. Uh, I know what it means for Jesus to break through into my, into my life. Well, we might be a little challenged today at getting at the text because uh, uh, I had a, a little technology failure this morning and so um, we have nothing on the screen. So we're going to have to kind of revert, kind of, old school 80s, so, you know, uh, we don't have any technology to help us with our eyes. I don't, I don't even have an overhead projector or anything like that with a, to use, so um, we'll actually have to, uh, we have some scripture in front of us, so there's some Bibles at the table, and if you brought your magnifying glass, you'll be able to look at that okay, uh, and if you choose to do that, it, we're going to look on page 532 of the Bibles that are in front of you. So if you don't have a Bible with you, you could look at that on page 532. And, uh, and we're going to talk about this idea of how does God break through into, into our lives. Um, I've shared a story in the past about an experience I had as a, I'm a campus minister by day. I work with college and university students, helping them build witnessing communities on their campuses where students are trained and equipped to, to lead friends into deeper relationships with Christ, to talk about, about, with the curious and the skeptics on campus about, about this God who wants to break into their lives. And I've shared the story about meeting with a group of colleagues, and uh, this is about 10 years ago. We're in a meeting, and one of my colleagues um, was speaking to us, and she was speaking about coming to the end of her rope. You know that phrase, coming to the end of your rope? It's kind of like where you have no more resources. You have nothing left to bring. You've kind of given all that you have, and you have nothing left. And what do you do? And as she was talking about that, um, she, uh, she said, I came to the end of everything I had to bring. I came to the end of uh, my wisdom. I came to the end of any strategy I had to bring. I came to the end of, of any kind of common sense. And, and she talked about, uh, her seeking God in a pretty deep and profound way out of that place of desperation. So she shared about her story. She shared from some scripture. She was talking about uh, some scripture in the Gospel of John. And, um, and so she gets to this point in her conversation with us, in her speaking, 
And she says, well, what about all of you? Um, and she poses this very poignant question. And she says, what about you, friends, colleagues? Uh, do, you, do you major more in strategy or do you major more in prayer? And we, uh, oh, yeah, that's a good question, yeah. So she asks again, do you major more in strategy or do you major more in prayer? She goes, well, let's just take a show of hands. So, uh, how many of you major in prayer? So, I look around the room, and of course, my colleague Molly, she raises her hand, because she's like a, one of those prayer people, you know, I expected her to raise her hand. Yeah, I major in prayer, and a few others. There's only a handful of people in the room that are raising their hands about majoring in prayer. And I'm like, whoa, we're all like professional Christians. We're like campus ministers. What's going on here? Like three of us, you know, or, you know, and not me. You know, they're raising their hands. I major in prayer. So how many of you major in strategy? That when you're looking at your roles with students and how to build a witnessing community on the campus and how, how to help students come to faith, you know, you're, you know, you're thinking, you're coming up with good ideas, you're kind of cutting edge thoughts about how to make that happen and how to build these groups on campus. How many of you major like that? And so I, like most of the room raises her hand. And then she pauses and she doesn't say anything. And what we see around us is a bunch of professional ministers standing and sitting in the room with their hands raised, saying that they major more in strategy than they major more in seeking God. What about you? What if I asked for a show of hands today? When you confront the challenges, the inevitable sufferings, hardships, perplexities, confusions, chaos of life, do you major more in strategy, I'll figure it out, or do you major more in prayer and in seeking the Lord? For us on that day, the Spirit kind of fell. I don't know if you've been in a place where there's like a God moment. You've been in a place where there's like, you feel like God's saying something here. And there's a God moment, and that happened to us. It took us to a place of repentance right there in that room. It's like, okay. It's a word of conviction, a word that calls us to repent, to turn around and go the other way. It provoked godly dissatisfaction and discontent within us. It was a poignant moment. And today, that's one of the core questions I'm bringing to us as we think about what does it mean for God to break into our lives is do we major more in our own strategy, which of course there's a place for thinking and decision making when we're confronted with real life scenarios and situations, or do we major more in seeking the living God who broke into our world to bring us to a place of salvation and a relationship with him and who continues to want to push himself into the center of our very existence? In the book of Acts, there's a pattern that shows the, the new believers in the early church coming to places where there's pressure points in their lives that causes them to respond with extraordinary seeking and then experiencing the visitation of God and then a transformation in their life and in their community. Today I'm going to look at just a piece of that. It's a pattern that uh, again, let me, I don't have it on the screen. It's a pattern of pressure point or crisis followed by an extraordinary seeking, followed by a visitation of the Lord and then some kind of transformation individually or as a community. Um, it's a pattern in the text. Um, I'm only going to just share about from one section, but we could look and see this. It's a pattern for the whole of the early church um, I think it has implications for our lives individually. Um, I'll just say at the outset, it's not as though we can come to the Lord and uh, twist his arm uh, with our extraordinary seeking. Um, he, remains the, he remains the sovereign God, the king and creator over all creation. Um, but there is a pattern in the book of Acts that when people extraordinarily seek the Lord, desperately seek him, that he comes. And he 
reveals himself. And that's his very nature. So I want us to look at that, um, make a few observations about it. And, and then we're going to hear um, a story about how God has um, come into the lives of, uh, of um, some friends of ours here in this church as they faced pressure point uh, that was followed by extraordinary seeking. And we'll hear about the way that God visited them. So pull out uh, a scripture of some kind if you have it. We're going to look at Acts 4, verse 23. Again, if it's in, uh, pull out your uh, pew Bible, uh, so to speak, and we can look there as well. So I'm going to read from that, and then we'll make a few of these observations together. So verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 23. So let me set the context. So we have the early church, um, we're right at the point following Pentecost, and uh, the believers have um, had this incredible experience. Um, there's maybe about 120 of them at this point, following Jesus' death and resurrection. At the feast, the Jewish feast of Pentecost, they've gathered, and others in the ta- in the, have come for this feast in Jerusalem, and in the, in the midst of that feast, God does something fantastic, and he comes in the, in, with his spirit, and he he causes people to be hearing others speak in, uh, in their languages. This is a festival where people came from all over, and they came speaking different languages, and they were hearing people um, at the speaking in their different languages. And it was this incredible experience that, that um, Peter, one of the, the, the followers of Jesus that was continuing to follow him after his death and resurrection, he stood up and interpreted what was going on, and he he borrowed from Old Testament Scripture, and he basically said, uh, this is something God foretold, and he's inviting you in, to come into relationship with him. And so he preaches and gives a sermon, 3,000 people come to faith, and uh, the city's turned upside down. The story goes on to tell us in chapter 3 that he and uh, John go to church one day, they go to the synagogue, and on their way, or to the temple, on their way there, they meet a guy that's been uh, lame since birth. He wants some money. Uh, they say, I don't have any money, but what I do have, I'll give you. In the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. And the guy stands up and he walks. He goes into the temple, proclaims what's, what has happened, uh, and there's a, sort of an uproar uh, in the city. And, uh, and then we read about the, the religious officials in town are a little bit uh, threatened by what's going on, a little bit annoyed. And so um, what they do is they... They, they call these guys, kind of put them in jail, haul them into to, to, uh, court the next day, and they kind of read them the riot act and say, no more of, of this stuff. And they say, well, we can't help but speak about what we've seen and heard. Um, and so this is kind of the, the, uh, the setting that we're in when we get to chapter 4. When they got out of uh, jail and had the riot act read to them, so to speak, they, uh, they, they come to this point in verse 23. It says this, When they were released, they went to their friends and they reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. And they said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus." And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Praise be to the word of God. Incredible. Um, The picture here is of a very um, dramatic scene. It's a dramatic scene. Can you imagine uh, thousands of people coming to faith and uh, opposition that's taking place from religious leaders as well as the governmental leaders who are threatened by what's going on. There's curiosity, there's interest, there's amazement. 
There's the power of God at work bringing healing. There's signs and wonders uh, in this place as they gather to pray. Um, the place is shaken. We don't really know exactly what that means, but the, the sense of the word is that there's like a, uh, a movement of the building almost, an earthquake of some kind. And then there's a filling with incredible boldness in the lives of these, uh, these, these men and women who now uh, are, are seeking God for boldness to witness in this unique uh, this unique place in this unique, this unique setting. Um, the mission of the church um, uh, in, in witness are, are bound together. Jesus in Acts 1 had said, when the power of the Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses. So they had taken this to heart. And they, were, they took this as their, their calling. Okay, we will do this. We'll be this. And so they're in the midst of this, they're seeking God to give them the boldness to be able to be, to be witnesses. Um, sometimes in the midst of, a, of a, a place where there's like a, a, a pressure point, which is happening here, right, as there's this sort of chaotic scene that's going on, um, pressure points in the midst of the, our life together at church can come about when there's uh, a, an activity of the Spirit that's dramatic like this or when there's opposition. But there's another time, times when the Spirit brings pressure points that aren't quite as dramatic. And in the course of church history, um, we, there's pictures of men and women of God who feel a pressure point that I would call holy discontent or godly dissatisfaction. It's something that stirs inside uh, that says, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. This isn't the, these, the way things are. There's more that God has for us. One of the stories of this is um, back in the 1800s in England, in um, there's a, there was a church there that um, was soon to be pastored by a man named Charles Spurgeon, so sort of a, a hero of the Christian faith. Um, he came to that church when he was 19 years old, hadn't even graduated from high school, uh, and he was coming in to, to be uh, preaching at this church. Uh, but what he discovered was a church that seated 1,500 and had about 100 people in it. Um, and God stirred a holy discontent within him. And there was a pressure point that got created within him. It wasn't a pressure point because of opposition or because of sort of a, a, a trying to understand the, the, this new thing that God was doing in dramatic fashion, but it was a pressure point nonetheless, and it was a pressure point inside, a pressure point where he was feeling like something's not all that God wants. It's not all that God has for this church. And so what he did was, he created a group of uh, people in the church that would just pray for him whenever he preached. So uh, they'd meet in the basement, they'd pray, and whenever he went preaching anywhere, he'd bring these folks with him to pray that God would bring breakthrough and transformation and change um, in wherever he went. In that church particularly, his response to this pressure point was to seek God and to invite others to seek God uh, with him. Well, we see in this picture in, in Acts that um, there's a multiple pressure points going on with this opposition, with the confusion about how do we understand this God uh, that's doing these new things, these signs and wonders? How do we accommodate all these new believers? What are we supposed to be doing together? You can imagine some of the pressure points that existed. Um, Pressure points, uh, you know, like in this church that I described with Charles Spurgeon, right, where there's a pressure coming out of a sense that there's more that God has, a discontent. But there's another place where all of us know we experience pressure points, and that's in the course of life. Um, when just in the course of life we confront the challenges of being men and women that are broken, um, that are designed in the image of God, but we are, are broken. We're not living to the full ex expression of the image of God that he created us for. And so not only us, but those around us, our spouse, our kids, the people we work with, all broken, all made in the image of God, but broken and incomplete and in the midst of life that's also um, marked by suffering and the brokenness of disease. We live with pressure points. We live with the pressure points of relationships that uh, are strained, are difficult, are broken, don't work, are hurtful, are dysfunctional, are abusive. 
We live with the pressure points of sickness and disease. Last night, I joined my wife, Denise, for the first time at the Riverside Walk for Life um, at the California School for the Deaf. She's gone the past few years because one of her close colleagues has cancer. Uh, I wanted to join her. She invited me. I went along last night. Actually, in our lives, I have a close colleague fighting cancer, and a neighbor across the street has cancer. Um, We spent a, a time walking around the track with lit luminaria bags all around the track at this high school, at the California School for the Deaf, and they all represented people with cancer. Um, It's very moving. Um, Not the way it's supposed to be. Not the way of uh, life that God created it to be. And yet that's part of the pressure points that um, every person there is touched by cancer in some way, and some in very deep and profound and painful ways. Um, This last week, um, I was sitting at Redlands Community Hospital with my wife and her brother, um, my father-in-law, Denise's dad. He's in the hospital there, and we're we're, um, uh, making plans for him to come home um, and have some extra care now in the house to help him. And uh, we're facing the pressure point. We were strategizing, in fact, together. We were strategizing about how in the world were we going to provide care for him in the home and provide for that economically? How are we going to pay for this? What are the resources we have to do this? And uh, we talked, and then we, um, we made some plans, and then we went back to her father's room and her mom. And later, I thought to myself, this is uh, so classic. Uh, that's why... We strategized, but the instinct in me to pray, I don't know where it went. And I was challenged by that the next morning as I spent time with God in a quiet time. I was just like, what was happening there? It would seem like if you believe in God and you've got these challenges that you would have this instinct to pray. Um, But I just defaulted to uh, what I know best, and that's to use my head and to strategize and think. God wasn't absent from that conversation, but uh, if I was to go back and do it again, I would have said, Lord, here's our best thoughts, and I don't even know how these thoughts will come to pass. We need you to show up. Would you do that? And that together we would have prayed together. Um, Pressure points come in life, and the challenge before us is will we major in strategy or will we major in prayer? In the text before us in Acts chapter 4, these guys got released from prison and they decided to seek God with their friends. So let me make a couple observations before we hear a story of, uh, about how that's happened in the lives of some of our friends here in this church. Um, the first thing that stands out to me in the text, in verse 23, is they sought the Lord in the company of friends. Uh, they sought the Lord in the company of friends. They went back to their friends, and they sought the Lord. And um, To me, that's a a beautiful thing. We don't know what that looks like exactly, how they raised their voice together, but they sought the Lord in the company of friends. Um, I'm challenged by that, to be a person who says, um, uh, that seeks out others for prayer. Is that a pattern in your life? Or are you uh, kind of more marked by our individualistic Western culture or... uh, uh, if, you were in, if you're Asian, by a shame-based culture that says you keep things to yourself, challenges and hardships and sufferings. Um, do you reach out to others and invite prayer? Uh, I'm suffering. I'm challenged today. I'm, I, need, I need more of God. I need a breakthrough of the Lord. Would you pray for me? Do you do that with spouses? Do you do that with friends? Do you do that with the brothers and sisters here? That's the picture in this text. It's beautiful. They, they were challenged. They faced these pressure points. They got together They came together to seek God together, praying together in the company of friends. Second thing I notice here is that they cry out to the God of power and life. They call him sovereign God and creator. Uh, Very few times, actually, in the New Testament do we see prayer to to God with the phrase uh, sovereign sovereign Lord. Um, It's a picture of a a sovereign is like a king. They have all power, all majesty, all all, uh, resources. And so the picture here is, They come and they acknowledge who God is. He's sovereign. He's king. He has all resources, all power, all authority, and he's creator. He created at the beginning of time, and he can create again out of nothing. He's the God who can create 
a way when there doesn't seem to be any way. And so that's how they come to this, this time of prayer. They address God as sovereign and as creator. And then they rely on the scriptures to interpret what's happening. They quote from Psalm chapter 2, or Psalm 2, David speaking there, and um, basically that there would be, there's going to be opposition to this, to, the, to, the, to this God, this sovereign king and creator. There's opposition. It's in Psalm 2. Uh, so they, he, uh, they borrow from the, their old, familiar Old Testament text and they bring the word forward into the vo- their words in prayer. And uh, they use that to help them interpret uh, what's going on, that there's opposition. And, you know, it's foretold from the past and here it is. It's happening again. Uh, but they borrowed from the scripture to help interpret and help them understand what's happening. I note that in the text. And then they call on God very specifically. They call on God very specifically. What did they, they need in that moment? They needed boldness for witness. Um, that's what they were in the midst of the pressure point was how do we engage what's happening all around us when there's this opposition? We want boldness, Lord. We want boldness to be the witnesses you told us we would be um, just a few days earlier. And so they have this reflex for prayer and um, and they, they gather together to seek, to, seek the, to seek the Lord. Let's take this to God, essentially, is what they're saying. I notice here two things. One, um, that they're majoring more in prayer than strategy. Uh, you know, we don't, I mean, it's, a, it's an argument from silence. The text doesn't tell us. Maybe they did sit around and strategize. What in the world are we going to do now? Um, but what, what uh, is recorded what Luke chooses to record for us isn't that strategy session, if indeed they had one. What he records for us is they sought the Lord in prayer. And that's what stands out for us. So the picture here is they majored more in prayer than in strategy. And then two is they made space for divine interruption. They made space for divine interruption. They gathered and they sought the Lord and they invited him to interrupt their life together and what's happening and to bring some kind of breakthrough. Um, in our church, the leadership team is seeking God right now for breakthrough. We have felt pressure points as a leadership team around holy discontent and godly dissatisfaction. That there's a stirring of God in our midst as a leaders team, and we believe in the lives of some of, of others in our congregation uh, for a deeper life with the Lord, for a deeper experience of intimate belonging with God, for a, a a, a new expression of the Spirit's work of transformation in our lives individually and in our life together as a community. That there's something more that God has for us, given uh, the size of our church, the depth of our relationships, the history that we have together, that there's more that, that God's wanting to do uh, to bring transformation in the company of friends. And so we've set aside this summer as a leaders, group of leaders to seek God to fast and seek the Lord in prayer and to ask God, what more do you want for us? What more do you want for our church? We're kind of taking the, the, uh, the mantra of seek God um, uh, uh, for, for renewal personally before we seek God for renewal uh, more missionally or corporately. So we're asking God, what do you want to show us about our lives, that you want, how you want to change us, and how is it that you want to change our church? Um, so I want you to know that and just invite you to pray alongside us and, to, and we'll, we'll probably come to some places where we, we need to gather and, and, and hear from the Lord and hear from one another. Lord, what is it, your words to us about um, the very work you're wanting to do in us individually and then together? Um, let me look at one other observation from the text that's really important for us because as elders we're praying and as a leadership team we're praying, but we don't know how God's going to show up. Um, I'm not sure these guys knew either, but the text tells us uh, that God came with a shaking and with uh, new signs and wonders and with a boldness, a fresh filling of the Spirit, so to speak. Um, The text says the place in which they were gathered was shaken, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the Word of God with boldness. Um, You know, the Spirit comes to us at unique times and fills us with faith and with gifts and with words when we need it. And then the, the text, the scripture tells us also that to, we were commanded to be filled with the Spirit, um, which tells us that it were, we can be like a balloon in which our faith and confidence in God seeps out, and we have to actively seek uh, to be filled with the Spirit. And we, we're, we're filled with the Spirit 
when we come before God, we open our hands to Him and we say, God, I replace the, the, the leadership of my life that I want to take on and I put it back in Your hands. You're the one in control. You're the sovereign Lord and Creator. I, I put myself before You and say, come and fill me with a renewed confidence in You. When we do that, we put ourselves in a place where the Spirit comes and He does fill us. The Spirit does come and give us a new uh, confidence and faith in what God wants to do. And in this text, as they came to God, what He gave them was a filling and a, a new power to speak God, of the Lord with boldness. That's what they needed at this pressure point. They needed a word uh, uh, and a power to speak in a way that they hadn't spoken before. The way I think about this is it could have been a breakdown moment or a breakthrough moment. And I think because they came before the Lord, it became a breakthrough moment. Well, I want to uh, invite uh, a couple to come up and share with us about uh, what happened for them at a place where there could have been a breakdown moment or a breakthrough moment. How it is that they came to a place of a pressure point, how they sought the Lord extraordinarily, and how God visited them. So Chad and Emily Rickard, why don't you come up and want to invite us to hear them give glory to God in a testimony of how God came into the midst of their life and where they needed breakthrough. They needed a breakthrough of God and what it is that the Lord did in their midst. Let's listen with words that, uh, or ears rather, that would help us discern maybe even what the Lord's saying to each of us and to you today um, about how God is wanting maybe to bring a breakthrough in our lives. So I'll leave us with that question. Where is it that the Lord's wanting to bring a breakthrough in your life? Let's listen and take courage and hope and faith from them. So come up, let's see, where's the... Oh, you got I it. think we're good, Great. yeah. Excellent. We're good. Um, so Tom has asked us to speak to uh, seeking breakthrough on a personal level, right? So this, this is not missional, this is not uh, church-centered, and so sometimes that this type of prayer can seem almost selfish, right? Uh, to ask God for something personal in your own life um, because it happens within the confines of your life. Every Christian has different major trials um, that will kind of be at their focus um, that they will be praying for breakthrough constantly. And so I think everyone could come up here and, and kind of speak to this concept. Uh, for us, one that's been at the forefront of the, the Rickard household uh, the last seven years has been uh, in, in regards to our, our third-born son, Ezra. And so I'm going to speak to uh, kind of the beginning of that uh, process for us, and then Emily will kind of talk through the journey for breakthrough and discernment uh, that we've been on pretty much ever since. After we had Jackson and Isaac, uh, our, our cute little family was, was good to go. Uh, we were done, uh, you know, two-kid two uh, American family. Um, Emily had gone back to work part-time teaching at CBU, and we just felt very comfortable uh, in, in the place that we were. Um, God gave us um, about a two-year period that was just full of joy, full of peace. Um, we didn't know we were gearing up for something. Um, but Emily just uh, had this, this feeling from God uh, that there was another record out there uh, that, 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 that needed to exist for God's purpose and God's plan. Um, and so we, we, we went back to work. Um, so we just, so, um, to understand, uh, the Ezra trial, um, from a father's standpoint, um, I think you have to know that while Emily was pregnant, uh, this is also when, when, you know, the recession is hitting, um, at, at work, you know, so I had, uh, constraints in that way. I had a new boss uh, that kind of came after me for being a Christian. Uh, and so I lost certain aspects of my job and actually lost. We lost uh, money in different ways. And so when I was looking at even having a third child, I'm just thinking about uh, the financial strain that, that would bring. Um, so I immediately went and put extra hours into work, um, just trying to pay the bills for our family. As far as Emily's pregnancy, um, uh, both of our, our first two labors uh, were, were very difficult um, and were, were problematic, to say the least. Uh, but toward the ends of the third uh, labor, um, it became clear that this situation was much more dangerous. 
after pushing for a long time with no results, uh, the nurse started just having to rotate in different positions, try whatever we can do to, to get this, this baby out into the world. Nothing's working. That There's more beeps. There's more electronic noises going off. There's uh, more doctors pouring into the room. And so when finally uh, Ezra did emerge into this world, everyone gave this sigh of relief, uh, and yet there was uh, something missing. Uh, there was a sound that was missing, and that was crying. Um, Ezra wasn't crying. He wasn't responding. Uh, he was uh, what's called unresponsive. Um, and so uh, I had kind of a different position in the room where I could see where they had taken Ezra, and Emily could not. Um, and so I'm just watching minute after minute. Um, and maybe Corinne, uh, who has just gotten a human development degree, right, um, could tell you how important those first minutes are of the development of, of the systems of a child. Um, and so I'm seeing doctors pour into the room, um, slapping the baby, you know, turning him over, doing whatever they can to get him to respond, um, all while trying to distract Emily, uh, who is asking questions, where's my baby, where's my baby? Uh, and so I, I'm trying to deal with these things. And, and in the midst of this, um, I begin just deep prayer, right? I think there are emotionally very different levels of prayer uh, that we have in our life, right? Now, that's necessarily okay. Um, but there are prayers that you give to God because you're obligated to, right? You feel obligated. Uh, there are prayers that you bring. You have these ideas of, Maybe something you, you would like to happen, and you're hoping it's aligned with God's vision as well. Um, but you don't, really don't expect him to you know, align to your, um, your vision. And then there are these prayers that um, I think you pray because you are deeply afraid of what will happen if, if things don't go a certain way. And so that was um, a prayer that just made me completely sick inside having to pray. Uh, my mother-in-law was about three feet behind me, and later we talked about she was in the same kind of prayer. Um, when Emily and I were talking about this yesterday and, and think about what we would talk about, we, we wanted to make sure that we were um, aware that uh, there are others that we love very deeply through, that do not have the same ending uh, to the story that, that we have. Um, Breakthrough is a a different concept in, a, in every struggle. Um, I think each of us have been taught that breakthrough requires suffering. Uh, if you look at the word itself, it implies, right? It implies that there's an obstacle. There's been a trial. There's been some negative force that has to be endured. Um, and the Bible is very clear uh, that suffering is a part of the me check check um and the breakthrough simply might mean that we learn that even when god does not answer our prayers um he is still amazing um breakthrough might mean just coming in a situation like this in front of other believers and and confessing god did not answer our prayer in the way that we wanted him to and he is still amazing he is still everything. He is still sufficient. And so we were just wanted to be mindful um, that the stories don't always end with breakthrough in the way that we would naturally desire. And this part of the story, though, God did directly uh, provide that. He provided direct breakthrough. Uh, after nearly 10 minutes of being unresponsive, uh, Ezra gave the, the tiniest cry. Um, and then another, and then another. Um, and obviously we were rejoicing, and, and even the doctors in the room uh, insinuated uh, how improbable that this was, that a baby would uh, spring to, to life and be responsive after this long. Um, they didn't use the word miraculous, um, but we knew that that's exactly what it was. And so little Ezra Jude, uh, so Ezra means God will help, uh, Jude means praise. And so uh, we will praise God because God is a God of help. Um, he, he already took on the power of his namesake on the first day of life.
So, <clears throat> sorry, I'm really nervous. I'm used to speaking for informational or like humorous purposes, but like <laughs> being personal is not my my strong point. Don't come back. <laughs> okay, thank you. <laughs> okay. Um, so, adding to that, um, obviously that was a huge breakthrough moment, but. Um, breakthrough is also sometimes a long, weird process. So I'm going to share a little bit um, about what that's looked like um, since Ezra was born. And kind of when, when Tom asked us to do this, I was like, yeah, sure. Then when he went to write things down, I was like, well, I don't know if it's like, is it really qualified as breakthrough? Like, I don't know. It's just kind of what happened. <laughs> but then I was like, okay, no, sometimes you don't realize you've been in a low valley to your climb out and you're on the, t- the hilltop and you're like, oh, wow, okay, yeah, that was a breakthrough, okay. So um, here we go. So Chad obviously was thoroughly traumatized by the whole birth thing, um, but I was super labored up, you know, like, and I hardly even knew what happened. I'm like, why are you freaking out? Where's my baby? What is happening, you know? Um, and Chad actually didn't even share with me a lot of what happened until quite some time later. And then I was like, oh, okay. Um so from that point on, settling to life with three kids was tough, but not so bad, um, except for the whole tired part, but that's normal. Um, until around Ezra was about six months old when babies start eating solid food, and then he would just cry all the time. He was always miserable. He didn't like other people to touch him. He didn't like people to hold him. He hated his brothers being in his space, like he was super overstimulated by everything, um, and you would start breaking out in hives all the time, which is not normal. I've had three kids. Like, this was not a normal situation. So um, this progressed over time. And a lot of you remember. We spared you photos. Um, but a lot of you remember. Um, it progressed a very painful, severe eczema. And him looking completely malnourished, like a baby you would see on a commercial asking for sponsorships. Um and the pediatrician we took him to said he was fine and that eczema is a normal condition and here's some hydrocortisone cream. And I was like, this is not normal, whatever. Um, but when it became clear to us that Ezra was not even learning to walk properly because his bones weren't forming correctly on top of his constant bleeding skin, because if you ever tell a baby not to scratch their itchy skin, it's just not a thing, um, we decided to seek other answers. So fortunately, thank God... Um, we had breakthrough based on our strategy. <laughs> sometimes God gives us breakthrough on strategy, and sometimes it's when we seek in prayer. So thank God he gave us um, answers and different practitioners to help us with his extreme eczema and his digestive health. Um, but the process for completely changing his diet, every single kind of household product we use, monitoring every single thing his skin came into contact with was daunting. And as moms, we know you do anything to help your kid, but you're always feeling like you're just not enough no matter what. And people have their opinions, and you have your own mom guilt. Um, So it was super hard um, just realizing this was my new job in life. Everything I was doing was centered around taking care of this kid, and I was still failing him. And he just wasn't getting better. So... Um, when you have a child with any chronic condition, it's exhausting to your soul in a, in a different way. There's no break. There's no escape. There's no letting your guard down for one minute. Um, the breakthrough we felt God granted us with Ezra's life seemed marred and skewed by late nights wrapping scrawny, bloody arms and legs with gauze and salves and the constant guesswork involved in identifying his constantly evolving food allergies and intolerances. That's great. Did you know that? That you could not be allergic to something, and then later you can decide to be allergic to it? It's really fun. Um, so watching a two-year-old with no energy to hardly even play, run, or laugh is just bizarre, especially when you have two other little boys who are bouncing off the walls, and you're like, what is wrong with this one? Um, many of you in this church were there for us in this crazy time. Always ask us how we were, um, visiting us when we ended up in the hospital, tolerating our crazy need to bring along our own food, and please don't feed the child um, mandates. <laughs> um, Gary Asphalt brought us gallons of goat milk when Ezra could have it uh, weekly, and it was a huge blessing. Anyway, when people are at their lowest point and can't see past the darkness closing in, even just the grasping of a friend's hand in the dark is a great comfort. So, I think it was about a year or two, I don't know, time kind of, so I don't even know what was happening. Um, a year or two into this crazy regimen that had become my new job, I realized how stressed out and possibly depressed I was. 
I had kind of been in robot mode, and all of a sudden I was awake to these feelings of, oh, sad, <laughs> sad feelings. Um, I think God gave me a small breakthrough when I realized that I didn't have to wait for Ezra to be better to live life. I started to realize that this, if this was our reality, I couldn't let it steal my joy. If this was how it was going to be, then I needed to make the best of it. And you know what? Bad things happen, and so what? So I feel like that was a breakthrough from God, just being able to be like, eh, oh, well, you know, we wanted a normal life. Oh, well, when does that ever happen? So I started to really enjoy all the things I was learning to help my son and asking better questions about health in general. And then what I considered the best, best thing started to happen. Um, other moms who were just fighting about their kids' allergies and eczema and autoimmune conditions started to reach out for me for questions and support. And then it became more than moms of kids with problems, but adults with problems as well. And when you can identify a purpose for your suffering, it's a huge shot in the arm to keep going. So all the while, the persistence we had with Ezra's care by God's grace began to pay off. Yay! Um, by the time he was three and a half, he started to seem kind of like a normal kid. Um, he started to laugh, which you're like, you don't really realize that your kid doesn't laugh until they start to. I was like, oh, wow, you're almost four, and now you're happy. Wonderful. Sorry that I didn't notice. Okay. Uh, he began to play, make jokes, and not hate it so much if his brothers gave him hugs. The setbacks of asthma attacks and crazy-looking skin were still depressing, but part of our norm. Sometimes breakthrough looks like endurance. Um, I didn't know if I should share this part, but there was a point in there where um, we started to also realize that the situation was more than medical, that there was some spiritual warfare going on. Um, I didn't write this down, but um, one night um, Ezra said to me, Mom, there's a monster on my back that's making me itch. And I was like, oh, heck no. We're not about to have any spiritual oppression up in this house. So that was another moment of breakthrough, of being called to beg God on a spiritual level to protect our house and to protect our child. I was like, oh, no, we're not having this. (laughs) We don't do monsters on the back in my house. So um, having that reminder of how important it is to keep in mind the battle is spiritual. The battle is against powers. And we had just been focused on keeping going and protection and food lockdown that we hadn't had that moment yet of, oh, wow, let's tell the evil to get out of here because we can, because Jesus, right? So um, around the same time, I meet Emily Hall. Um, and sometimes breakthrough looks like gentle suggestions um, from a person you don't know that well yet. And um, she recommended a practitioner that had helped her a lot as a child. And um, I can tell you that from that moment where we prayed the demons out the house (laughs) and started seeing this new person, um, his improvement was markedly better. Um, Every question or problem I ran into, this new person had an answer for. So sometimes breakthrough is miraculous and instantaneous, and sometimes it's gradual and practical. So it's easier for me to see these moments of breakthrough in retrospect, um, And it sort of looks like this in summary. I woke up in the last few months to my life, and I see an amazing husband and three awesome kids. And I see that I spend time helping every day with people, people with the information I learned when I was struggling. I see Ezra laughing and dancing and making jokes and remembering every detail of everything and holding you to it and doing math faster in his head than I can. So I can't tell you when exactly it all happened, but I know I've been in low places and I'm not there anymore. So I spent time throughout all this begging God for miraculous healing, only for him to answer, all in good time. He granted us small breakthroughs along the way to keep us going, but if he had given us miraculous healing, I actually would have missed out on so much. I have learned so much and been empowered to help others by being on this journey with my son. So sometimes breakthrough isn't just for you and your tiny world. Sometimes it's collective. Sometimes your spiritual breakthrough is slow so that others are brought along into the journey. I think the most important thing to keep in mind as Tom speaks to us today about breakthroughs is that, yes, we should boldly ask God for miracles, but we need to keep our eyes, hearts, and minds open to see what those miracles look like. We see things uh, dimly as through a mirror, but God sees the whole cosmic picture with eternity in mind. So ask, 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 ask God because he longs to give and know he will give in ways beyond what you expect.
Yeah, I, I, thank you, Emily and Chad, for um, letting us into your world and what it's like and has been like in your world as you've uh, loved your son and cared for him and sought the Lord along the way. I'm touched in, in a couple ways by what Chad and Emily have to say. And, and one is uh, just that within them, um, in the midst of seeking answers and being strategic and trying to figure out how do we navigate through this difficult challenge, there was this reflex that was in them um, to, to seek God to pray and to ask for God uh, to show up. Um, and I think that what Emily said at the end about ask, 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 um, there's times when um, we do seek the Lord and we're, we're, we're asking for, for something and it seems improbable, unimaginable. It seems difficult to even conceive of this happening, something happening. And the scripture invites us to continue to seek uh, to bring uh, our emotions, our thoughts, our longings, our fears, our anger, and bring all of who we are before the presence of God and, um, and ask him to do something with that. And so that, that is, um, for me, oftentimes is, is foreign because uh, I just want to work it out. And I think that's that, that question about do we major in strategy or do we major in prayer? Um, and many of you in this, this body have figured out how to live a life that's, uh, where, where prayer is at the center and God is at the center, the sovereign Lord and the creator God, and, and how to make prayer uh, a priority over strategy. And, and then there's maybe the rest of us that, are, that we're trying to figure that out, how it is that we cultivate a life of, um, of trust and confidence um, and continue to, to kind of figure out how to have, develop that reflex that causes us to seek God in the midst of the pressure points that come in life. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up, and um, we're going to end our worship time today with um, a few songs of worship, and uh, I want to leave us with a scripture and then an invitation. So the scripture is from Ephesians 3. It's verse 20 and 21. Paul writes to the church at Ephesus this. He says um, uh, this truth. He says that by the power at work within us, God is able to exceedingly and abundantly do more than we could ask or imagine for the sake of the, the, for the glory of Christ in the church. That God's able to, to do more than we could ask or even imagine. And as we come to worship today, to the end, I, I want to leave us with this invitation. Um, in the midst of pressure points that you're feeling today, um, wherever they're at, if they're relational, their health, their economic, their, uh, that holy discontent that there's more that God you feel like there's more God wants to do in and through and with your life or win in, in and through us as a body, wherever that pressure point is, um, I want to invite you to seek God, even as we worship today, for breakthrough. I don't know what that might look like, but where is it that you want God to bring a breakthrough in your character, in your relationships, etc.? Where is it that you want God to come and do something maybe even more than you could ask or imagine? It's vulnerable. To ask that because we risk disappointment, we risk the um, uncertainty uh, of, of what will happen and how God will respond um, in the way that we're imagining. But I want to invite you to step into that uncertainty and step into uh, the truth that God is good and that he wants to reveal himself even this morning. So I invite you as we come to worship, if you uh, want to seek God for breakthrough uh, in a place in your life, do that where you're sitting. Or if you want to come up front, we'll br- some of our prayer partners will come up front and be glad to pray with you as you bring that longing before the Lord. So let's worship God together for breakthrough.